Welcome to Transformers, the podcast about how business people and policymakers are creating a sustainable future. I'm your host, Kai Embren. According to the UN, the global population is projected to reach 9 billion in 2050. Food production is one of the leading causes of climate change and creates between 25 to 30 percent of global greenhouse gas emissions every year. How can we feed the planet without costing the Earth? In a series of six episodes sponsored by Tetrapack, we will attempting to answer this question. Tetrapack is the world leading food processing and packaging solutions company with a mission to accelerate decarbonization and transform the world's food systems. In the six programs, we will talk to different stakeholders and explore how they are working to eliminate hunger and reduce the impacts of the food systems on the climate. My guest today is Dr. Martin Frick, director of the World Food Program with his global office in Berlin. And Martin Frick is also acting director for the World Food Program to the European Union. He has deep insights and experience with the global challenges of combating hunger, climate change and broken food systems. Welcome, Martin. Hello, Kai. A growing population in the face of unsustainable food production and distribution model, among other things. Martin Frick, can you tell us about the challenges we face to eliminate hunger? What are the main causes and why have the current agriculture and food production systems failed? Well, Kai, thank you. Um, lots of questions in one, and maybe I start by just, you know, locating where we are. Um, four years ago in 2019, there were 135 million people worldwide who were so food insecure that they were depending on assistance of organizations such as the World Food Programme. By December 2021, that number was already 276 million. And today it's 345 million. So how could that happen? And particularly, you said our food systems is not working. But astonishingly, it has been working really well every time since the Second World War where after the war, almost half of the global population didn't have enough to eat. And then progress in agriculture, in trade, all of that constantly helped to bring the hunger numbers down to a point that in 2015, when heads of states and government met to agree on the sustainable development goals, they put number two out there to eradicate hunger by 2030 not to reduce the numbers, but to eradicate. And the slogan was zero hunger. And this was possible in 2015 because of these numbers going down for a very long time. And now within a very short period of time, we see the exact opposite. We see the numbers going up and rapidly so. And I'm happy to speak about the causes of why that is. Uh, that's interesting. Why this change? Well, I think we are seeing a mix of different factors. The biggest driver of hunger worldwide is still war. It's man-made. And if you see that today we have about 
double life conflicts that we had 10 years ago, um, it's obvious how strongly this is impacting on food security. The war against Ukraine very dramatically put overnight the fifth largest producer of food or the fifth largest exporter, I should say, of food offline with dramatic consequences for global food prices and little earthquakes, I would say, of food price development all over the planet. Not only where you should expect it, like in the Middle East and North Africa, but also in South Africa and places as far away as Latin America. And so while we are having new wars, Sudan, just the latest edition, the old situations are not going away. So war is a key driver of food insecurity. And then, of course, we have the COVID pandemic. And during the height of the pandemic, supply chains have been interrupted. People fell ill, trade basically collapsed. But we are still suffering under the COVID pandemic, not in the sense that we are in isolation or that we are in quarantine and wearing masks, but COVID has driven dozens of particularly African countries deep into debt. And that brought um, entire economies at the verge of what they can do. The consequences are obvious. You have more than 60 countries now with an inflation rate of basic foodstuff of 15% and more. And you have local currencies who lost constantly on value compared to the US dollar, which is the main currency. And then the third reason, and you know, we are feeling it um, every day and this year particularly, is climate change. Climate change, and in this year even exacerbated by an El Nino year, is really impacting on the production. Horn of Africa we now had six consecutive rainy seasons that did not happen. So, you know, how can you do agriculture? How can you do animal husbandry if there is no rain over six failed seasons? But when we look at this uh, escalating problems and change over periods, so it's the system in itself involved a lot of actors, everything from politician to the local store or the local farmers. Uh, what can we learn from, from the latest years of, of development? What we can learn is how incredibly vulnerable our food system is, how incredibly interdependent and how complicated the trade relationships all around the planet are. Now, I'm not a person arguing against global markets, quite on the contrary. Global markets are essential for food security. But at the same time, we see how underdeveloped um, national markets are, regional markets are, particularly Sub-Sahara Africa. So there is a link to the world market, but there is no link or very weak link to the neighboring country. That needs to be improved. And for me, um, quite dramatically, and this is where several vulnerabilities come together, is how insanely dependent we are from only three different varieties of food, 
namely corn, rice and wheat. 60% of our calories only from three different types of crop. That's not only a vulnerability when it comes to the prices of these crops, that is also a vulnerability when it comes um, to the nutrition agenda because this is pretty much empty calories and it's often devastating for biodiversity and it makes us so much more vulnerable to climate change because in many cases these crops have replaced indigenous species and a whole variety of foodstuff that would be much better adapted to for example water stress and heat waves everything seemed to be interconnected and and who in the world can drive this change that is needed will circularity help us to solve the problem yes and the clear and resounding yes and it's actually already a tragedy that we need to reintroduce circularity to agriculture because agriculture by nature is and should be circular where the waste is going back to the land where the cycles are being closed Good agriculture is an example for a perfectly closed carbon cycle. And so what we need to do is we need to empower the small producers. We need to empower the small farmers, particularly in the poorest countries of the world. I have a double 80 number, which is staggering. One is that 80% of the hungry people on this planet are actually smallholder farmers. That doesn't make sense, that people who produce food should go hungry. But then secondly, 80% of the food that is being provided to Africans in Sub-Saharan Africa is being produced by smallholder farmers. And these are people, mainly women actually, who know quite well how to deal with the local system, who can create circularity by composting, by rainwater harvesting, by crop mixtures, by particularly building back soils, bringing carbon, the excess of carbon that we are having in the atmosphere back in the soil to improve it. But this needs empowerment and this needs also additional incentives such as payments for ecosystem services or participation in carbon markets so that these farmers are actually getting real value because they are creating value, because they are building up nature capital. Food producing system, agriculture, or particularly mixed models such as agroforestry, so a mix of um, trees and cropping, or silvopastoralism, where you mix animals and forests or also grazing models that are holistic meaning that animals roam around in a dense pack and then nature has time to recover all of these models can actually build up nature capital which means mainly building up rich soils that are full of nutrition that are carbon rich and that are able to store water even over extended periods of time, particularly in drought situations. So that circularity that an animal is eating grass and is, of course, you know, 
defecating on the ground and that's building up the carbon and preparing the soil so cropping is possible. But the waste from cropping can go into biodigesters, become biogas, provide people with clean cooking gas. The sludge comes back as a fertilizer. So all of these systems are by design circular. When we look at the whole system of actors in the field of the food system, uh, you have you have the local production, but you also have the consumers and you have the manufacturing and processing industry. How can they provide a better solution to meet the demands? Right. Um, I'm always saying that in the current food system, if you only look at the production, we would have more than enough food for 8 billion people. We would roughly have enough food for 10 billion people. So there's no reason people should go hungry. We are enormously wasteful with our food. And in rich countries, this takes the shape of food waste. We have about 36% of our food going to waste in rich countries. Obviously, this is something where consumers can do their share by being more conscious about their food choices. But we also need retailers to stop madness, like, for example, having a full choice of ready-made meals until 10 o'clock in the evening when the shop is closing and everything will be um, put to a dump. Processing industry, I think it's incredibly important, particularly in developing countries. Because one of the absurdities I've been speaking often about is that in developing countries, you also have about 36% of the food produced going to waste. But there, not because consumers waste it, but because simple food processing is missing. So there is no trying, there is no canning, there are no cold chains. And often it is as simple as a road is too bad that the 30 miles to the local markets could be bridged in order to sell the produce. And there is a lot of potential and a lot of good business to be done in helping people to process their food, making it longer lasting, you know, turning fruits into jam or juice, turning vegetables into dried or canned vegetables or frozen ones to avoid that what actually grew and would be available to eat is rotting on the fields. When you look at uh, the most important action or what you can call incentives for drive change, can you give the listeners three advice where we well, should look at? Look at cheap food and think about why cheap food is cheap. And I would argue that cheap food is mostly cheap because all the enormous costs related to it, environmental costs, social costs, are invisible to the consumers. In a sense, the cost of cheap food production is being externalized. It's been put to society to pay for it. For example, the health costs. Um, you can produce very bad food incredibly cheaply, but people getting obese or getting diabetes or non-transmittable diseases 
they will end up being on the social system and so everybody is paying for that. If you mirror that and you look at food production that actually builds up nature capital, that builds soils, that helps, helps bringing back biodiversity, that helps managing water, then the benefit of this model is not only the food that is being produced, but it's also the repair work, so to say, um, on the system, which is our fundamental system that keeps us alive. And I believe farmers should be paid for these services. So a farmer that is cropping in um, a diverse system, that's bringing biodiversity back, a farmer who is enriching the soils and building it up should get an additional payment. So participation in carbon markets is one example how this could be possible. Ecosystem payments is another one. Or also money for disaster risk uh, protection. Think about preventing landslides by having a managed forest on the hill. Think about having a resilient water system because upstream in the catchment area you've got intact ecosystems. All of that needs to be monetized in a, in a good way and I'm very careful here because I'm not arguing for big companies coming in and privatizing everything, but I'm arguing for smallholder farmers who should have a benefit from the ecosystems that they are providing. I have been uh, looking into another part of the problem of, of uh, the, the agriculture sector and the question of phosphorus. Do you have any views of uh, the problem with phosphorus today? Phosphorus, um, fertilizer and also nitrogen in soils, these are also things that can be managed by organic cropping systems. You can have leguminous plants that are fixing nitrogen in the soil. Um, you can reduce the need for phosphorus by actually composting and so on. What these methods have in common is they are labor intensive. And our agricultural model has been built around being as little labor intensive as possible. And that makes sense, obviously, in countries where you have very high salary levels. So if you are doing agriculture in Sweden, there is an argument for that. But the people we are looking after as World Food Program, as development agencies, are the poorest of the poorest. And in that part of the world, having a labor-intensive, nature-positive agricultural model might actually be the only possibility also to provide the number of jobs you want to have. But that, again, is a question of payments. So sorry, everything is depending on everything. And also the question of phosphorus is not an absolute need. It also depends on how you manage your land and how labor intensive this management model is. And where do you see the drivers of change today? Uh, when you look at the business society? Um, it's interesting. I'm living in an urban area and urban young people often give you a good feeling about where the trends are, where people are going in. 
And what I see with young people here, and I think worldwide, is a much higher consciousness for food, a much higher willingness to look into the food that you are eating. You see young people going back to urban gardening, which was for my generation more something that grandparents do, but they are passionate about it. They are growing their own food. They are trying to eat consciously. They are trying to buy food which is well produced and locally produced. So I see that change is happening there. Because also if you are, as a young person, start to understand the global context in which you are living and you understand issues like climate change and biodiversity loss, and young people do understand that way often better than their own parents or grandparents, then it's immediate if you follow that line that you end up by food. And so you see much higher consciousness about food in young people that, you know, we had 10 years ago. And when we look at the established industry, can they contribute with their role of change? Yes, yes, absolutely. And you see that with committed companies. Issues like Nutri-Score, that people are now labeling their products on the nutrient content of it. You see more and more retailers who make an effort to buy locally and advertise that the potatoes on the shelf not coming from further away than 50 kilometers. You see serious efforts to reduce carbon footprints. You also sometimes see greenwashing, so there are good companies out there and not so good companies. But there are many possibilities, um, reducing packaging, for example, or flexible pricing systems in which certain products become cheaper and cheaper towards the end of the day, so they are being sold and not going to waste. Support to social initiatives, participation in models where perfectly good food is being sold for, even given away for, or sold for a fraction of the price, so people can use it, supporting homeless people. So I see a lot of goodwill in business, and <laughs> a situation in which you know, business and consumers are to a bit also bridging the gap that is there because of, of the big UN processes, there is no clear guidance, you know, and so people are filling in and quite often you see businesses sort of creating their own laws by applying standards to their production, to their procurement and to their retailing. Can you provide with any sort of example of a business that have been taking step in the, the right direction of, of change? <laughs> I am aware of a French supermarket chain, for example, that even years ago changed the pricing from putting little sticky labels on the produce um, to having digital displays that actually counting down. So if you find a tomato in the shop and it costs X and you come back five hours later, you will notice that the price has slightly reduced. And that constant discounting, for example, helps 
to sell the products before they're not sellable anymore. I see companies doing more consumer orientation around to sell by dates, for example. I was just laughing because I have honey in my kitchen and that has a to sell by date. And we know that honey was found in the pyramids that was three and a half thousand years old and is still good for consumption because basically it's just condensed sugar. So there is not much that can go wrong. But this idea of to sell by dates is another driver also of food waste for no reason. My last question to you will uh, be connected to how the system thinking works in, uh, when we talk about food. How can we provide collaboration and, and to both for business but also for the politician to give the right incentives for, for change? Two things here. Food system is touching upon many different categories and many different responsibilities within governments. So when you said earlier that, you know, food system is 26% of global emissions, I would even challenge that. Because if you consider that about a billion people are working in food systems and that they need to commute to work and that food is being sent around the planet and it's packaged in plastic and the supermarket is being cooled down, I would actually estimate that food systems might be way above 35% of the global emissions. So I think first, what is always difficult for any sort of public administration, or even any sort of administration, is to have different parts and different responsibilities talking to each other. And that is what you need. You know, a food system, for example, can only be improved if there's local shops. So city planning is playing a role. Ministry of Agriculture, of course, is playing a role. Um, taxation, ministers of ministries of finance. You want to tax the right thing and you want to reduce taxes on other things. I think um, ministries of health should be actively participating in everything health because food systems are the biggest driver of people not being healthy. But this is incredibly complex. It's really not easy to bring different actors in government talking to each other. But I also want to mirror that. You know, today people are speaking about the poly crisis, about a crisis with a thousand faces where so many things go wrong, you know, where people are obese and people are lonesome and they eat the wrong stuff and we've seen in the COVID pandemic that those are most in danger that are actually weakened because they're not getting nutritious food. And then there is the giant biodiversity agenda. There is climate. It's maddening and for a political decision maker, super complicated. But here I would say using food systems as a lens through which you look at complexity is actually a very powerful tool to help manage the complexity. Because here you have something tangible, understandable, and in a, in a way, a thousand different issues coming together here. So if you are able to 
fix the food systems, you are fixing an awful lot of other situations as well. So maybe here is the, you know, the way through the labyrinth and that maze of a poly crisis can be solved with the food systems as, as guidance. Thank you very much for your contribution, how we make our food system more efficient and more sustainable for, for the time to come. Thank you, Martin. Thank you. I'm Kai Embren. Follow me on Twitter and LinkedIn, where I will be announcing the future guests to this podcast. And you can expect about two programs a month. And each guest has a unique story of making business and society sustainable. So find out more. Visit my homepage, kaiembren.org. Thank you for listening.